We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of We the Deplorables, a place for those who value faith, family, freedom, and the traditional values and uh, Constitution, Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, Pledge of Allegiance, American flag, and everything that makes us a great nation. And this episode is about what some of us thought made us a great nation for decades, and that is the public school system. Now, I want to dive into, in this episode, teachers' unions, which is now a form of American Marxism. Uh, I do want to give a disclaimer that I homeschooled my son, and I didn't really homeschool him because I didn't trust the public school system or uh, I worried about him getting a good education. I maybe should have been, uh, but I basically um, did homeschooling because I only had 18 years with him and I wanted to spend as much time as possible as I could getting to watch him grow up and give him a good education. So when I was a kid in school, I loved it. Uh, I think of, you know, fun Thanksgiving crafts right before Christmas break, learning how to write cursive and addition and multiplication and social studies and world history, which was my favorite. And then U.S. history, it bored me because, you know, at the time I was a world history gal. Uh, I remember recess and the oppressive heat of West Texas at Burnett uh, Elementary, and I remember the very cold temperatures of winter playing on the playground that made my hands hurt, and teachers that you knew loved what they did and they cared about their students. Now, of course, you know, there were those who obviously hated children. I'm not even sure why they were teachers. Oh, wait, they might have been Marxists. And then those darn no-nonsense English teachers that put us to work the very first day of school and all the way to the very last day of school. I do remember being bullied in elementary, um, but overall, I loved school. It was a safe place for me. I loved to learn, and I still love to learn. Uh, I feel like my dad instilled that in me because we would have discussions that required critical thinking, and uh, the school system just basically put in me uh, a desire to learn. So in spite of the English teachers, I had this romantic view of teachers as soft-spoken, strong, wholesome ladies, and somewhat intimidating but kind male teachers, uh, almost like a leave-it-to-beaver mentality maybe of innocence and, you know, enthusiastic, bright-eyed, sweet 
children learning reading, writing, and arithmetic until COVID. Thanks to the shutdowns, of which I'm still of the opinion should have never happened, parents gained an inside look at what their children are being taught in today's public education system. Critical race theory, transgenderism, and other highly sexualized topics, even in elementary schools. Social justice justice topics, which is simply a mask for Marxist training using race. And parents were horrified. I do remember when my son was little, probably in elementary school, there were some warning signs. Um, Children were returning from schools with ways to do uh, witchcraft spells. And after 9-11, you started seeing more and more um, anti-American, pro-Islam uh, uh, stuff. And, you know, it. I did start seeing some things that were very concerning. But uh, since COVID, parents have, it's almost like a lid was taken off. The door was opened and parents are horrified at what is being taught to their children. And so, when did schools, when did it happen that they became arbiters of morality? You know, sex education is a parent's job. Topics of race and racism is a parent's job. Social justice is a parent's job. But as always with elites, they always think it's their job to dictate to us their morality, whether we agree with it or not. And usually their morality isn't moral at all. So what the heck happened? How did our teachers and teacher u- teachers unions get radicalized and become trained Marxists? Surprisingly, John Dewey, the founder of our modern day public school system, was actually a Marxist, which I learned the other day, and we'll get into it a little bit later in this show. But we have seen in the last decade, you know, several protests and walk-offs of, you know, shutting down schools, you know, teachers striking, leaving parents in a lurch that, you know, have full-time jobs, uh, children without classes, which is probably not a bad thing given what they're being taught today in places like Wisconsin and Oklahoma, West Virginia, and other states. And we as Americans, we have the right to protest. That is in our founding documents. But some of the tactics and pressure campaigns were and are eerily similar to far-left groups that we've seen protests, especially in recent years and especially during Donald Trump's term. But here's the real problem. There wasn't a problem for these teachers. There was actually no reason for them to protest. So I'm going to read a few things out of Socialist uh, Never Sleep or Don't Sleep. And... um, I'm relying on this one a little bit for this podcast, and then I'm going to get into a little bit from uh, uh, Mark R. Levine's book, or Levin's book, uh, American Marxism. But the um, shutdown of schools from the strikes, oops, sorry about that, guys, I just hit my microphone. Let me read a little bit about what happened from chapter four. Wisconsin, year 2011, was in turmoil. Republican Governor Scott Walker and Republicans in the legislature facing what was estimated as a two-year, $3.0 billion budget shortfall proposed a bill that would cut public employees' benefits, including those for teachers and local governments, as well as curb some collective bargaining rights and the accompanying means of paying for that service, the compulsory members' dues. Okay, so now that's unions. 
Unions fast-forwarded into frenzy. We're at a point of crisis, Walker said, explaining the financial tightening was necessary to save 6,000 or so jobs. The unions didn't care. Tens of thousands of union-represented public employees rallied in the streets of Madison, while thousands more stormed the state capitol, noisily took up spots, and refused to leave. The state house filled with as many as 10,000 demonstrators who chanted, sang the national anthem, and beat drums for hours, one Associated Press story read. The noise level in the rotunda rose to the level of a chainsaw, and many uh, Madison teachers joined the protest by calling in sick in such numbers that the district had to cancel classes. Actually, about 40% of teachers in the area called in sick, leaving students the children, the very ones the liberals always say they seek to protect, along with their working parents, in limbo. It's not as if the proposed cuts were outrageous. Indeed, public workers were being asked to pay more into their pensions and at least 12.6% of their health care plans. Given that private sector employees rarely even have pensions these days, between 1975 and the mid-2000s, the number of workers with pensions in the private force dropped from 88% to 33%, and given that private sector employees also regularly pay for 50% or so of their work-based health care plans, Wisconsin's Republicans weren't asking for a lot of their tax-paid force. It was simply time to pay the piper for years of irresponsible fiscal living, two of which, 2009-2010, came with Democrats completely in charge in the House, Senate, and Governor's Mansion. Walker and the Republicans didn't create the mess. They were trying to clean it up. Besides, it's not as if teachers in Wisconsin were exactly poverty-stricken. In the 2009-2010 fiscal year, public school teachers in the state earned an average of 49816 for a salary and another 25325 in benefits. At $75,141, that's not too shabby, especially in a state that falls consistently on the lower end of national cost of living comparisons in the area of housing, transportation, groceries. Again, the unions did not care. To union leadership, it wasn't just the extra pension and health costs that irked. It was a reality of losing their unfettered rights to bargain, meaning their unfettered powers to hogtie politicians and taxpayers and bend them to their financial will that most galled. Collective bargaining, contrary to what the name suggests, is actually about as far from the table of equitable bargaining as can be. More truthfully, collective bargaining is a union's way of forcing employers to make concessions or else. It's not so much bargaining as it is extortion. And in a country like America, where markets are supposedly free, and where citizens in the workforce can pick and choose and come and go as they please, the system of collective bargaining like affirmative action should have been killed long ago. Okay, so here we have the teachers, we've got the union uh, representatives, they're all gathering and they're um, using mob-style protests on the floor of the Capitol at the offices of the governor. They were outside state buildings and elsewhere, and they raved, raved uh, wave signs. They demanded Walker's recall. They chanted slogans, blocked doorways, disrupted business. Uh, they even slept on the floors of the Capitol building, which actually was against the law. So police were called to the scene, and then they would quiet you know, any of the outbreaks that would occur. Meanwhile, Democrat representatives made themselves scarce. More than two dozen Democrat assembly members, friends of the union, all simply skipped town and took up lodging in hotels just outside the state's borders. Why? To deny the Republicans a necessary quorum to vote on the budget bill. Now, we're seeing the same thing happen with Texas. 
the Democrats that fled uh, maskless on a plane spreading uh, the Delta variant of COVID and now asking for care packages like little babies. So um, what happened is sanity prevailed as uh, the author, Cheryl Chumley, says in her book, the Republican adults in the room stayed tough, steered straight on March 10th after weeks of contentious hearings. The state assembly passed a budget bill uh, with all its curbs on costs, and they made basically Wisconsin a right-to-work state versus mandatory unions and dues, etc. Okay, so things didn't go that great uh, at the time for uh, this group of teachers, all right? However, uh, something was brewing in West Virginia, and I'm going to take you inside how this happened. But um, the public schools is now the battleground for money, power, control, leftist indoctrination, and outright socialist infiltration. And we are seeing that very, very plainly. Unfortunately, not a lot of people watch mainstream media. It's actually about uh, 12 million people out of however many that we have in this country. I think it's like over 300 million. So we need to share this podcast. We need to educate our neighbor. We need to sit down and have discussions and alert American citizens to what is going on in our nation. Okay, so on February 22nd, 2018, teachers in West Virginia kicked off a massive strike that impacted an estimated 277,000 students. The reason is because uh, union leaders said that Republican Governor Jim Justice's budgeted 4% raises for teachers over three years was not enough money. So, Thousands of teachers across 55 counties walked out of class, headed to the state capitol to protest at the political offices of Charleston. So hundreds of schools were uh, closed because they were empty. The building stayed that way until March 7th when teachers basically won a 5% raise in return to their classrooms. Now, the unions won their 5% pay raise concessions from the governor just a few days into the strike, but that wasn't enough. So on February 27th, he signed a deal a few days later on that Tuesday, March 6th, but teachers didn't want to return to school. So the schools were called off on Wednesday, March 7th for a cooling off period, and then they resumed on Thursday, March 7th. And that was posted on the West Virginia Education Association Facebook page. Okay, now here's what is frustrating. Yes, we can concede that the striking teachers were paid below the, um, the national average, okay? But here's the thing. They don't tell you that West Virginia's cost of living in comparison to other states was and is below average. So teachers making the average of 45642 which is actually really good in West Virginia, they wanted to be paid the average of 84227 of the New York educator. Well, of course they're not going to get that because uh, New York has a higher cost of living. In one estimate, West Virginia's cost of living was figured nearly 22 percentage points below the national average with a median home cost of $96,400 compared to the average cost of $231,200 in the United States. So also, the um, West Virginia Department of Commerce says that the state's cost of living was rated 5.6% lower than the average uh, for the country. So 
Another one claimed that it was actually 12% lower. Now, there could be, you know, uh, discrepancies, of course, due to different factors. But here's what it says. Local experts, despite rising costs of living, West Virginia remains one of the most affordable states to live. This was in the WVNews.com. They reported this in August 2018. So why would teachers in West Virginia expect or demand to make salaries that would put them on par with educators living in more expensive states? The answer is they shouldn't. But just as in Wisconsin, teachers in West Virginia didn't care about financial facts, which that, as we know, if you've listened to any of my podcasts so far, that is a conditioning, it's a um, Soviet Union ability to condition people to dismiss facts because that doesn't matter to the cause. So they wanted their money, they wanted it now. Now, their protests were carefully orchestrated and strategically planned They were completely socialist-driven, and they were specifically crafted by socialists working within the school system, okay? So there is a website called the Democrat Socialists of America, and I want to go over a few things. So here is um, the headline of one of the articles there. Uh, It is, Why Socialists Should Become Teachers. Okay, so uh, let me start off by reading a few paragraphs. A few DSA members that were teachers in West Virginia public schools having uh, began having conversations about new austerity measures facing public employees. Our wages have been stagnant for years, unlike our health care costs, which are climbing. We formed a reading group, held brainstorming sessions, and quickly agreed that winning our demands would require militant action. We had no idea that we were laying the groundwork for what would culminate in a historic, successful nine-day strike that spread like wildfire to Oklahoma, Kentucky, Arizona, Colorado, and beyond. So they go into the um, 5% raise that they wanted, and they basically do what most Marxists do, which is a pivot um, people against each other. So the corporations that are highly profitable and exploiting West Virginia's natural wealth were pitted against the common worker who is being mistreated. So that's, that's usually the Marxist message. And so socialist teachers challenged the notion um, that they said, it's our job to ask for a raise in healthcare fix. It's the lawmaker's job to figure out where the money comes from. Okay, so they said raise taxes on the corporations and extractive fossil fuel industries exploit our people. Uh, So they then turned it into this, you know, again, trained Marxists, trained organizers. That's what they do. They go after big business. Now, uh, they have this word, and I'm going to get into what this means. But they they said that our relationship to the economy of West Virginia played a critical role in the decision to strike and the solidarity we were able to build with our communities. And we're going to get into this um, solidarity stuff in a second. Now, here's what they did. And they're, and this is on their website. Knowing that two-thirds of our students rely on free and reduced-cost lunch, teachers spent the weeks leading up to the strike making calls to local churches, food banks, and community organizations to set up food distribution sites. Parents reacted by joining us on the picket lines, making calls to legislators, and shutting down conservative attacks against selfish teachers. Local businesses responded by bringing food and coffee to the Capitol and picket lines, and faith leaders sent out messages of support. I do not understand that. It, people are either ignorant, they believe um, that these teachers and these unions are for the children, 
or they believe in their message. I don't know. But here you've got churches and organizations supporting this. Uh, and so then they you know, said we had our work cut out for us. Um, they still wanted their health plan funded. The 5% raise wasn't enough to keep teachers in schools for long terms, blah, blah. Now, here is what uh, I want you to hear in this uh, episode is how they do this stuff. So the West Virginia strike didn't happen by chance, this website says. It was a result of creative shop floor organizing by teachers with socialist politics. These teachers introduced a fundamentally different vision of their state than what was uh, on offer from either elected officials or union leaders, and they were able to do this because they had organic connections to their co-workers. Rather, rather than shouting socialist messaging at workers from afar, these teachers were able to alter the direction of the movement from within. Now, see, that's very interesting. And the DSA members became active in workplace organizing. See, that's what they do. They're trained organizers. They gave out you know, pamphlets um, that argued that socialists should take jobs as teachers, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that is how they did it. And they say, why is it important for them to become teachers? Socialists have a long history of involvement in the workplace, and socialists believe that workers create society's wealth and that the working class is the only class capable of governing society democratically. It is at the point of production that workers create value with, uh, beyond what they are compensated for, and this is what Marx calls surplus value, which is realized as profit. Okay, now see, this is very interesting. It, they are very, very plain in their Marxist uh, theology. And I call it a theology because it is a religion. While the vast majority of teachers are public employees, this doesn't remove us from the domain of capital. While teachers don't make a product that is sold on the market, we are necessary in the production, reproduction of a capitalist economy and the perpetuation of classes. It's teachers who train both socially and technically the workers of the future. See, the term worker is referring to the um the labor force that are being oppressed by those mean, greedy uh, business owners and corporation uh, CEOs. Okay, so they don't—they want a classless society. Uh, in America, anyone, anyone can make a future and make themselves successful. They go on to say, when capitalist power is strong, so is a drive to squeeze the public f- uh, sphere to cut funding from universal programs and redirect it towards the market, like private schools. The often abysmal funding of schools that helped spark the massive red state strikes of early 2018 made clear that even though teachers are public employees, we are not immune to political and economic pressures of the billionaire class. Okay, If socialists have long viewed the workplace as central to the socialist product, project. They have also seen the labor movement as central to organizing the workplace. I mean, they even, they have this dude named, uh, or this lady named Kim Moody, I'm sorry, a, a man named Kim Moody in his essay, The Rank and File Strategy, Building a Socialist Movement in the U.S. And he writes, bring people together at the heart of social relations of production. This is where both class formation and class conflict begin except on those rare occasions when the class struggle breaks into an open political warfare, it is at the workplace the tug of war between labor and capital is sharpest and most recurring. There are, of course, other sites of class conflict against landlords, healthcare providers, and educational institutions themselves, for example. But the most effective socialist movements have all recognized that left politics are a non-starter without deep involvement in the labor 
movement. The unions provide a political and organizational setting in which ongoing education, organization, and struggle can be conducted. Hmm. Now you can read everything. I, of course, will have the show notes uh, or the link in the show notes as usual. But isn't that very interesting? Okay, now let's go back to um, the West Virginia situation. So this is also from uh, dsausa.org. Uh, link will be in the show notes. And so, um, you know, it goes into you know what was going on and, um, you know, they felt like they weren't being taken care of. And, you know, I mean, I can understand if health care costs are going up and more is coming out of your pocket. But still, when you look at the facts and figures, they were making plenty of money. And uh, so um, here is one of the persons that basically got all of that started in West Virginia. So this uh, individual, um, it was written by Megan Day. Uh, so I believe she's the one that got the ball rolling, said uh, basically all of the financial things um, combined, it was causing tensions to grow. Uh, but what really changed everything was people realizing that others felt the same way. And that's important for us too, because there are plenty of us. There are plenty of deplorables out there that will fight for this nation by basically implementing the same tactics they have as far as book groups and brainstorming and neighbor talking to neighbor. And we'll get into some of those things uh, at the end of this show. So the mood changed from griping to seriously talking about doing something, she said. So I had created a Facebook group in the fall. I called it West Virginia Teachers United. I did that because I was frustrated with the fact that we had too many teachers unions in West Virginia, and they spent most of their time trying to out-recruit the other ones rather than working on real issues. So I was just trying to get people together in one place. But when we saw how frustrated people were with the potential changes, my friend Emily and I decided to open it up to all public employees and we pushed it and tried to organize, see there's that word again, through the Facebook group. They had a goal to get a thousand people uh, in it by New Year's and when they reached that, they thought, oh man, this is amazing. Now here's what they would do. So I want you to pay attention how they do this. We would sign people up at the town hall, the uh, PEIA hearing. We were trying to get... Uh, people who were already frustrated enough to come out to these things, activist types, but the group really grew. And in January, one lady in the group said, so when are we going to talk about a strike? Now, within hours, a friend let her know, have you looked at the Facebook group? Because it had gone from 1,000, I think, to over 20,000 members by the end of January. Okay. And so, you know, of course, they do the strike and they get some of their stuff, you know, that they want. Um, But listen to this. I think collectively, that's one of their favorite phrases, a lot of us were feeling that way. Uh, Because for years, we've tried um, the whole email, call, visit your legislator thing. Finally, the Southern counties had enough, and they called it Fed Up Friday. And then they said, we're not coming to school. One key key thing they had was service personnel on board, which is actually a separate union here. The bus drivers, cooks, and other people were all on board. And when you live in a really rural state, you can't have a school without them. The teachers basically said, buses aren't running, the teachers aren't coming, you do what you want, but we won't be there on Friday. Word got out. The governor tried to talk to them, reason with them. Nope, didn't happen. Um, now, uh, let's see. 
Let me read you this quote uh, from DSA, and I think this is from the same um, article, but uh, I want to uh, go ahead and read this out of uh, the book Socialists Don't Sleep. Despite attacks on schools and teacher unions in the recent past, teaching is still one of the most noble professions in the United States. In most states, teaching pays a living wage with benefits, including health insurance. Even in West Virginia, uh, where teachers experience some of the lowest pay in the nation, they were sometimes the highest paid workers in their community. Isn't that interesting? They admitted that on their website. So the whole point of this and reading you um, this stuff is to show you how these socialists do this kind of stuff. And this is what they do. They foster a narrative of victimhood at the hands of anyone with money, and they do it to lay the groundwork for the government to come in and strip those with money uh, of their money and redistribute it elsewhere. Okay? And uh, so... um, Uh, Another quote out of the book says, The West Virginia strike didn't happen by chance. Uh, It was a result of creative shop floor organizing by teachers. Okay, so I already read that. Sorry about that, guys. Um, And then... Okay, listen to this. They have a specific agenda for um, using the schools. Uh, It's a system that's already highly unionized, so the masses are easier to recruit and shepherd. Um, education's not going anywhere. You know what I mean? Like it's, we're stuck with it, which is good. We want education, but I think people need to start pulling their kids out and going to private schooling. Uh, the system is ingrained in communities nationwide. I mean, you know, you see your teachers, your school teachers out in public and things like that. Uh, so compassion for the cause of teachers, they can get pretty easily because a lot of people don't know how radical, uh, uh, some of these teachers are. And teaching's a relatively stable job. So basically, they have, you know, right pickings in the school system. Uh, So in the words of the Democrat Socialists of America from their website, they say, the rank-and-file strategy is not only concerned with recruiting our co-workers to socialist organizations. The aim of the rank-and-file strategy is to build organizations of working-class people that challenge the power of capital. Organizers on the shop floors, the schools, for instance, was a socialist political vision can help build struggles, do you hear that? Build struggles that draw in large clouds of workers and raise the class consciousness of many. It's out of these struggles that new socialists will arise. arise. Hmm. And you know what was crazy is the West Virginia strike was actually illegal. You're not supposed to do that. And, you know, like uh, she says in her book, you know, it's, it's tough to see these kindly teachers that send home report cards to be a marching militant formation. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's hard for us to picture that. And, uh, you know, it's it's like an oxymoron. It's like uh, picturing, uh, you know, a a doctor that wants to kill you. You know, like it's against everything that doctors stand for. Now, when I was researching this, I wanted to look at some of the local chapters of the Democrat Socialists of America in my own state, which you can find on dsausa.org. And so we've got two. We've got one in Albuquerque, one in Santa Fe. Listen to some of this. Liberty, equality, social justice, solidarity, socialism. We are a democratic socialist organization dedicated to creating a better world through social and political change. So they talk about their history. 
And then they say, we believe in a version of socialism that is profoundly democratic and deliberative. We feel that the means and resources of protection, production should be held by the larger collective. Okay, now this is very important words. We also believe in democratic economic planning, equitable, not equality, but equitable distribution of resources. Aha, uh -huh, there it is. Gender and racial equality uh, and non-oppressive relationships, which we're going to get into some of these terms. We believe that workers require strong unions to fight for better working conditions. And they want to reject an economic order based on privately held profit, alienated labor, gross inequalities of wealth and power, discrimination based on any aspect of identity and brutality and violence in defense of the status quo. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So then I went over to the Santa Fe one. Join our worker solidarity, solidarity network. Aha. So then I look at the, the campaigns. And I'm like, oh, cancel rent. So I clicked on that. Santa Fe DSA calls for New Mexico legislators to cancel rent. The Cancel Rent campaign is a nationwide citizen lobbying project to create more support for H.R. 6515, the Rent and Mortgage Cancellation Act. Elon Omar's office summarizes the bill on her website. You can read the language of the bill itself here. Now, that's a person who hates this country. DSA Santa Fe members and workers solid, good grief, solidarity network organizers, here we go, will urge New Mexico representatives and senators to pass legislation during the special se session taking place this June. The campaign's goals for legislators to cancel rent and utility payments for New Mexico, New Mexicans, while COVID-19 continues to affect the state. Hmm. Yep, they have call scripts, um, letter and email, more call scripts. I mean, it's very, very interesting. They have them in Spanish and in English. So let me break down some of these words, okay? Democratic. Well, this is where the population rules or mob rule versus being represented by those that we vote into office, okay? That's what Democrat means. Uh, now think about this, okay? Just, you know, you got the will of the people, mob rule, deciding laws, removing or adding constitutional amendments, etc. So there are uh, mobs out there, powerful mobs, BLM, teachers unions, colleges, many in the Democrat Party. There are trained Marxists who believe this nation must be destroyed. It's history, politics, traditions, and, air quote, reimagined and rebuilt based on socialist principles. There are others that are part of this mob that believe that females are males and males are females and that even birds are racist. I'm not kidding you at all. And if you want examples of modern-day effective mob rule, just look at Seattle, Portland, New York, and Chicago. Mob rule created the defunding of the police, exponential murder and crime increase, and burned cities. And you can listen to that in my BLM um, section. So we're actually a republic, and I will have a podcast on the differences and why a republic and all that at a later date. But the idea, the purpose of the republic was to protect us from the mob. And so that is the idea. The system is we can have the best of both worlds. We can be a Democrat, a democracy in which we vote in individuals to represent us, and then they 
uh, we'll work with the um, executive and judicial branches that have a set of checks and balances that prevent tyrants from within the government and without. So this system is the best in the world, and it's worth preserving for mob rule, which always turns into tyranny. Okay, so you've got people that can't even believe in the science of gender that want to destroy this country, if we, and they always scream democracy, but if we allow these people to take over, uh, we will no longer have a country. America will cease to exist because they don't want America like we have. They want to destroy it. So that's the mob rule. That's why our Constitution and our three legislate our three branches of legislative, executive, and um, judicial, they are infiltrating them and trying to destroy them while at the same time indoctrinating our children. So let me give you some definitions of some of the words that were used on these websites, okay? Uh, so collective, what the heck is collective? Well, I'm going to read you some of these definitions from Mark Levin's book, American Marxism. Now you're going to hear Joseph because, um, that's my cat. I don't know where my husband is, but obviously he's not in the house. And so Joseph is feeling a little restless. Okay. So Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx in their own ways argue for the individual subjugation into a general will or greater good or bigger cause built on rag- radical uh, egalitarianism, that is, the collective. For Hegel, the individual finds his actualization, liberty, happiness, fulfillment through the state. Okay? First, you have to overthrow the existing regime and smash capitalism, replacing them with a centralized pro proletariat state and one society and culture are once society and culture are cleansed of the past the state will wither away and what follows is a a uh, amorphous utopian state powered by the people through the collective okay and not only that marxists uh basically view the individual pursuit of personal happiness as immoral that's in our declaration of independence guys Okay, so there's no such thing as individuality or individual rights. And out of this Marxist theology has come all of the cancel culture, all of the shutting down of free speech that we're seeing happen in this country. Now, what about the phrase non-oppressive relationships? Well, that's basically, um, you know, the idea that words might hurt you. So we've got to stop free speech or really anything that offends or is contrary to the socialists. Um, the solidarity thing. Now, this is interesting. Uh, you'll hear a lot, one vote equals one voice. Now, that is mob rule. And then solidarity is a revolutionary, multi-tenancy socialist organizations in the United States associated with the journal Against the Current. Solidarity is an organizational descendant of the International Socialists, a third camp Marxist organization, which argued that the Soviet Union was not a degenerated worker states, but rather bureaucratic collectivism, a new and especially repressive class society. Solidarity describes itself as a democratic, revolutionary, socialist, feminist, anti-racist organization. Okay, so what does this mean? 
It just means that they're saying Russia didn't do it right, but we can. That's why uh, we need to go ahead and become a socialist nation. So when you see the word solidarity is a Marxist word. Okay. So um, I'm going to have another episode that will get into the uh, key words and trigger words. uh, But uh, for now, you get the idea. So this is going to wrap up part one. I'm actually going to stop this one and I'm going to dive right into part two. Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait a week between episodes, but I've got some great little bonus uh, mini uh, shows that I am in the process of uh, creating. So until next week, guys, God bless America.